Uh, and uh, I got that when I was about four. I've mentioned this before. I was a really bad child. Uh, really, really bad. My nickname with my parents' friends was the hooligan. And uh, I, I know you're thinking, this surely can't be. Uh, that, um, I, was, I, was, I was banned from some of my family's parents' friends' houses because I was atrocious. Anyway, we'd been to some friends in York, and, and you know what old, old, pair, old people, they weren't old, they're my age, but you know what old adults do when they get together? They talk and talk and talk. And when you're four, it's like the world will never end. You know, this conversation is going to go on and on, and I was really, really bored and nothing to do. So I kind of went outside at my parents' friends. It was a beautiful summer kind of day. We'd been doing some stuff in York. And uh, my parents were, were catching up and talk, 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 and my brother was being annoying. So I left, and it turned that my friends had, um, uh, in their garden, they got bantam chickens, hens. And I kind of was like, really curious about this, because one of this, these sort of fluffy black things, hens, had got a load of little chicks. Chicks are nice, aren't they? And being a, a hooligan four-year-old, I thought it'd be really fun to catch the chicks because they needed to be played with in my four-year-old mind. So I went to, to and I was thinking, how do you, you know, I sort of ran after them, but they were quite quick and ran away. Uh, so I thought, one, you needed something to catch the chicks with. And I discovered in the garden, because it was kind of uh, early, early summer, that they'd put netting over some fruit or something. I don't know what it was. So I thought that would be a great thing to catch chicks like that garden netting. So I took the garden netting off wherever it was meant, and I sort of made this thing. And I was very effective at catching the chicks. And once I caught these chicks, they're all going, you know, doing the chick noises. And I was like, I wasn't going to be mean to them, but I just wanted to, to see them. So I was squatting down. I was, um, you know, obviously just seeing the chicks and things I'd caught. Uh, but Mother Bantamham wasn't so impressed that her little chicks were squeaking in fear. And uh, so me being a little four-year-old, I was squatting down. It kind of rushed at me, as only mother hens can do. And it startled me, and I kind of fell backwards. And it kind of then went in for the kill. <laughs> this maniacal bantam hen. And it pecked me right here. I deserved it, Heckle says. <laughs> I did, actually. I did deserve it. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit shocked that this black fluffy thing, uh, fe feathered thing, had done And then I suddenly realized that I was bleeding. And, you know, I started to kind of cry out because this thing was going in for attack number two. It was like, it was like the Luftwaffe. It was coming round again. <laughs> so I called out, and my parents, I think, heard the commotion and came out. And they said, what are you doing? And they saw this blood now, and they saw this uh, rabid hen that was about to going for the jugular, and, uh, and I said, I was just helping these chicks, they got stuck in the netting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you poor thing, you bad hen, and they chased it off, and, they, and I got, had to, to go to a cottage hospital on a Saturday afternoon and have a tetanus injection, that's another story, and that was horrific because of needles. But I had this patch, and I was, there was, I was quite relieved it didn't get my eye, actually, this, this horrible hen. Uh, I bear the scar. On the way out, you're going to be peering, seeing <laughs> you can see it. I was at uh, a Fresh Streams prayer and fasting day this week, and um, as we were worshipping and uh, kind of seeking the Lord, there was 
there was a lady in front of me, and on the back of her hand, there's this really big scar, old scar. She was in kind of probably early 50s. And I, I was meant to be loving the Lord and worshiping Jesus, but I got really curious. How did that happen? Because it was really, really obvious. I thought, did she fall through some window? What, what would have caused that? Did she have an operation? I was really sort of struck for a few minutes about that scar. And then I thought, you're being really nosy. Now, you're not going to go up to her after and say, oh, I noticed your scar. How did you get that? Tell me all about the pain of uh, your predecessors that gave you that. But as I kind of drew myself back and took that thought captive and thought, right, I'm going to worship the Lord again, I, I, I felt something of the nudge of the Spirit about that. Partly because I knew I was preaching this morning and we finished the Exodus series, the Gospel According to Moses, last week. and knew that it's a bit of a, a standalone one-off this Sunday because next week's the open air and it was communion this week. And I wrote some things down because as I noticed that scar, it was the testament of something that happened. It was the testament that her life was marked and she carried that visual reminder of an event that undoubtedly was painful and has been something she's carried since. And as he began to worship the Lord Jesus, I remembered those times and those scriptures and that reminder that Jesus bears the scars. Let me read to you from, from the Gospel of Luke, and it's chapter 24, verses 36 to 43. It's a resurrection appearance. Right at the end of Luke's Gospel, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost doesn't have flesh and blow, bones as you see I have. When he'd said this, he, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, you got anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Jesus rose again. He rose from the dead. I've been thinking a little bit about that, not because it was Easter not so long ago, but just thinking a little bit about some things we may be thinking about as a church together in the coming weeks. But one of the things, crucially, and as we celebrated this, if that's the right word in celebration, on Friday at their funeral, is Jesus rose from the dead. That the Christian faith, and, and Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 has a whole chapter, and, and in essence he says, if it, Jesus rose physically, bodily, 
tangibly from the grave, not to be a ghost and disembodied and spirit-like and ethereal. He actually rose again, and he said people saw him, Peter and John and the disciples, and even 500 at one point, and said if he didn't rise from the dead, our faith is utterly worthless. It's not just a good idea. It is true. And Luke records for us this wonderful moment where the disciples don't believe it. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of like, it's a ghost, you know, and they've got doubts and questions. And Jesus ever so wonderfully and slightly weirdly says, look at the scars. I'm going to ask that the, um, uh, the PowerPoint comes up and can you pop the screen down as well so we get the full size. Jesus says, look Look, scars. That what happened in his, uh, it's not Dan's fusion. Uh, <laughs> blessing though that is. I'm not saying that it scars the women <laughs> or the men who dance. There we are, scars. Thank you, Mike. That the bodily resurrection of Jesus truly matters. It mattered to the disciples and it matters to us. It matters in ways that we haven't perhaps thought about, and, and hopefully in the coming weeks we will consider something of that. It matters because Jesus rose. He died on the cross and he rose again. And he bears the scars of that horrific death, of that horrific moment in history that he willingly chose because the Father knew that it was the only way through which we could be rescued. That he entered in, he was born amongst us, he, he, he became flesh like us, and that flesh was marred and scarred because Jesus obediently, willingly, out of such great love, endured the cross and its shame. That, the, the, that John, one of the gospel writers, but later on in Revelation, speaks about in heaven the lamb slain before creation of the world. That in God, and this is a profound mystery, that when he's risen, when he's resurrected in this resurrection body, there's not this sort of airbrushing out, touching up the picture and the photograph to kind of take away the blemishes and the reminder of that horrific moment. Far from it. Actually, a celebration and a recognition that as we worship Jesus, He bears the scars that point to that expression and the truth of His great love. For me and my eye and my mistake with the chicken in a tiny, tiny reflection of a moment in my life, Jesus bears the scars of all time of that most wonderful, epic, powerful, life-transforming moment and bears them. And the disciples in their bewilderment and their doubts and their questions and their thinking, don't understand this is this hasn't happened before of course it hasn't he invites them and says come come look at my hands and my feet you know it's me because you saw me die 
You saw the nails pierce. You saw the spear thrust in my side. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. And then said, have you got anything to eat? <laughs> Love that. He was real. Really, really alive. See, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, this most central, wonderful part of the gospel matters. Why? Because, firstly, it's a proof. The proof that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. The, the proof that as Jesus walked, lived amongst them and they saw the most miraculous things, and they heard, heard the most life-transforming, liberating, freeing teaching, affirming teaching, teaching that made sense. It, you know, everyone said, what wisdom is this? I mean, come to Jesus and read his gospel, read the story, and you'll still find wonderful, wonderful wisdom to chart you and trace you and navigate through life. I mean, it works. And they were amazed at that teaching, the wisdom. But it was more than that, that the resurrection is proof that Jesus is the Son of God because they knew that he had died. Without a shadow of a doubt, they knew that this man was crucified, that he was impaled, that he cried out his last, that he was buried in the borrowed tomb, that he was dead. With Cell, our young people's group, uh, just before Easter, we, we had a worship and prayer night. And in my own kind of slightly weird way, I got a, a leg of lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God. And I, it was from the co-op. And I took it out of its bags and all the blood leaked out. And I put it on a plate. And I set it up in a, you're going to think, what a macabre thing to do. But I said, go and reflect on the leg of lamb. If you want, you can touch it and prod it. And they went, oh, it's bloody. And it was dead. And lifeless. And as I spent time with that leg of lamb, <laughs> bizarre phrase, I was really struck that it's, it was dead meat. You see, the disciples knew that Jesus was dead, meat, entombed, encased, the stone rolled across, decaying, lifeless, just like everything else in this world. And yet, he rose. That that dead meat wasn't just reanimated, but resurrected. Wasn't just resuscitated, but new life. Life beyond death. Death couldn't hold him. In a few moments, we're going to be breaking bread and, and sharing wine, the testimony of the scars and this moment that is transforming of history and transforming of each one of us because he rose again from the grave, that death and nature and all the things that we know to be true are undone because he is risen. He's risen indeed. The God unlocks 
the greatest barrier, the greatest thing that holds us back, that God's power goes beyond and says, this is not any more final. Hallelujah. Resurrection is also the pledge that authenticates Jesus' teaching. It's, it's like the underlining, the full stop, the highlighting, the, the, the clarion call, the, the broadcast to the world to say this true teaching was wise and good and amazing when he was alive, but let's just celebrate it now and, and affirm it and pledge that it is true because God has vindicated his Son. In all the world, in all the books that have written, there is none like Jesus because he is risen. That his words that he spoke about how to live and how to treat each other, but more as importantly, how and who God is, we can trust them and, and know that they are certain, not only because we can test them out, but ultimately because Jesus is risen. They are true beyond a shadow of a doubt. And finally, just uh, in this, why is resurrection important? It's the, it's the plea. It's the reminder that He is risen and we can meet Him. It's a plea to remind us that this risen Christ who carries life in Him is also carrying and reminding us of the sacrifice that He bore and the wounds that He carries, the scars that He has were because of us. If we could uh, put the next one on. That in Isaiah 53, a most wonderful passage, verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we're healed. The reminder as we come to the table, the reminder for the disciples as they saw the scars, the wounds, the reminder that they aren't airbrushed out, that he carries them, because it's a reminder and a, a visible reminder that through all time, for all people, no matter who we are, his death was sufficient. That the scars he carries were once and for all. The scars point back to him on the cross dying once and for all, for us all, completely, fully, finally. And that as they are born in the resurrected body of Jesus, the reminder that it is finished. We are forgiven. That it is completed. The reminder in the scars that God isn't aloof and distant and says, oh, just Come on, sort yourselves out. The reminder in the scars. The reminder as we remember his body broken. The reminder as we worship the marred one. That God knows. That we don't just worship a God who keeps himself from harm. 
We don't just worship a God who says suffering is just to be avoided or escaped. I don't just worship a God who says that pain has no benefit. I don't just worship a God who just wants me to be happy with wealth and health and prosperity here on earth. I don't just worship a God who exempts himself from the reality of human existence and the struggles of life. A God like that would never be enough for us in the midst of the storms of life. Jesus is the one that makes the difference. In Jesus, I see God choosing to get personally involved with us, though I don't deserve it. In Jesus, I see God willing to embrace suffering in a radical way. In Jesus, I see God bringing redemption out of the immensely dark misery of life that is encapsulated and surrounded by death. In the scars of God, I see that he knows what this feels like, that this love of God is not just theoretical, not just an idea or just empty talk. The scars of God show me the realest love that we've ever known. There was a, a man called Edward Shillito. He, he lived from 1872 to 1948. He was a free church minister in World War I. He wrote a poem, and there's some words of it just coming up. I shall read the whole poem. Reflecting and experiencing the horror and the trauma of World War I, of which we are recognizing a hundred years ago. He poemed this. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus, of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm, Lord Jesus, by the scars? We claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut thou drawest near, only reveal those hands that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds but thou alone. You see, for me, with the bantam hand, that mark draws me to remember that, that moment. As we worship the Lord in the glory of his holiness and his majesty, writ large, in the resurrected Jesus are the wounds he carries. The signs of the sacrifice, the signs of that moment. As he was impaled and breathed his last. As he died in our place. The substitute. 
for a world that was dead set on death. While we were still enemies, God, He loved us. Just one story. How much does God love us? We know the answer. But His love is enough to sacrifice Himself to give Himself for us. Possibly one of the closest analogies to that most mysterious, sacred, profound, too big for words, is an incident from the Second World War involving a man called Father Maximilian Kolbe, who was a Polish priest. Father Kolbe had risked his life on many occasions up to the time he was sent into Auschwitz. He'd offered refuge and protection for over 2,000 Jews after the Nazis invaded Poland. Eventually, the place that he and the four other priests had organized for protection, for rescue, came under suspicion, and Father Colby was, and the other priests were arrested and sent also to Auschwitz. There was a rule in that camp to discourage escapees that if one man escaped, ten men would be killed in retaliation. In 1941, a man from Kolbe's bunker escaped. The dreadful irony of the, the story is that the escaped prisoner was later found dead in one of the camp latrines. They didn't know that at the time. The commandant led these men out of the bunker and he screamed at them, you are all going to pay. Ten of you will be locked in the starvation bunker without food or water until you die. One by one, ten were selected, including a man named Francisek. Couldn't let out but a cry. He began sobbing, my poor wife, my poor children. What will happen to them? What will they do? And it was in that moment that Father Colby stepped forward. He took off his cap and said, I'm a Catholic priest. Let me take his place. I am old. He has a wife and children. The Nazi commandant screamed, Where does this Polish, what does this Polish pig want? Father Colby pointed to the condemned Francis II and repeated, I am a Catholic priest from Poland. I would like to take his place because he has a wife and children. The commandant remained silent for a moment. No one knew what he was going to do. But astonishingly, the request was granted. In their logic, they thought... It would be more valuable to have a young worker than an old man. An obvious exchange. The man, Francisek, said, I could only thank him with my eyes. I was too stunned by what happened. The immensity of it, he recollected. I, the condemned, am to live and someone else willingly and voluntarily offering his life for mine. And he is stranger. I never had any time to say anything to Maximilian Colby. I was saved. I owe my entire life to him. But in the scars of Jesus, we see the love of God 
the love of God born for this world, expressed for this world in a way more than we can imagine that we were condemned, we were broken, we were destined for death. And yet Jesus gave his life for us. This is the memory and the thanksgiving and the meal and the celebration. I'd like us to come to the table and we'll reflect using a video. Thank you.
who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions, transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We're invited to this meal of remembrance. This bread and this wine, symbols of his body broken and his blood shed.